Well, I'll turn, invite you to turn to uh, Philippians chapter 1, once again. Philippians chapter 1. We'll be finishing up Paul's introductory thanksgiving and prayer today, as we'll be looking specifically at verses 8 through 11. Um, but I'd like to begin by reading in verse 3 through to 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We have been seeing this fellowship between Paul and the Philippian church, and that it is rooted in a common salvation. They are all one in Christ Jesus, and this has resulted in a partnership in which the Philippians have continually supported Paul in his apostolic mission, in his missionary ventures. From really the first day, he said, right up until the present moment that Paul was writing this letter, they were helping as they had opportunity. And this serves, as we examine this relationship, this serves as a wonderful example for us of gospel fellowship, gospel partnership. But Paul is not merely commending them so as to pump their tires. He's not simply trying to flatter them for how great they are. He knows that the work that God has begun in them, in calling them and in forgiving them and saving them, is not yet completed in them. Paul has expressed his confidence. Remember in verse 6, we looked at last week, that God will complete the work that he began. And then as we get into verses 9 to 11, he prays that this growth would in fact continue. So what we see in verses 8 to 11, the verses we're looking at this afternoon, is that true gospel fellowship is a maturing fellowship. This is not something that you simply enter into and that's it. There is, in fact, a growing, there is a maturing process. So our outline as we go through these verses today, number one, maturing in affection and love. Two, maturing in knowledge and discernment. And three, maturing, sorry, maturity reaching its conclusion. Maturity reaching its conclusion. So number one, maturing in affection and love. As we get to verse 8, Paul expresses his affection here for the Philippians. He's already made his affection, his love for them known. He mentioned the joy with which he prays for them. Given their partnership with him, he's able to make his prayer with joy. And in verse 7, he already mentioned that he held them in his heart. 
And now he says it again, perhaps more directly and with a great tenderness. He says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. As Paul expresses himself here to these dear believers, he calls on God as a witness. Paul is expressing something in his heart, something that is inward, this affection, and only God ultimately can verify if this is true or if this is just talk. And Paul, before God, is saying, God is my witness. God could vouch and will vouch for the truthfulness of what he's saying. These are, these are not empty words. This is no, you know, just kind of obligatory love you that's got to be said or something like that. He's calling on God himself as a witness, not something the apostle is going to do lightly. And he says that he has a yearning for them that is rooted in a Christ-like affection, a longing for them. This love that the love that Christ has for the Philippians. This love is also at work in the Apostle Paul, obviously in a lesser way. But Paul loves them with a Christ-like affection. Now, that word affection is a reference to the feeling or the emotion of love itself. Love is obviously much more than that, and we'll see that in just a moment. But here Paul expresses his affection for them. Today, most people, I would suggest, uh, associate love primarily with a feeling or maybe even solely with a feeling. And of course, this is a great error. Uh, it leads to this thinking that we fall in and out of love. It's just, it's more of a pagan concept than a Christian one, that love is just this kind of controlling emotion or power that comes upon you and then it leaves you and it's tied to a feeling. That is an error, of course. We want to avoid that kind of an error when we think of what it means to love. But we also don't want to head over into the opposite ditch and think that love never involves or has nothing to do with affection. Paul genuinely has affection for this church. He longs for them. He yearns for them and says he has this affection for them. His yearning, as he says he yearns for them, probably includes a desire to be with them. It is his yearning to be with them. But also, given the context, it seems also to be a yearning and a longing for these believers to grow in their maturity, to be filled with love for one another and growing in grace. Paul is zealous for their godliness. He's zealous for their good. Paul expresses his affection here and he becomes an example to us of mature Christian love. And then he continues, he prays that they too would abound in love. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So here Paul resumes the prayer that he began in verse 4 and he carries it through to the end of verse 11. And the first thing he says here is that he prays that their love would abound more and more. Love here is the word. This is, we mentioned the one Christian word or Greek word most Christians know 
earlier. This is probably the other one. Uh, agape love. We've heard that word. It goes beyond simply an affection and in fact stands at the root of all true loving affection. It is a self-sacrificing concern and regard for others. It is used in the Bible to describe God himself, his own love, and the love that God's people have for one another. We see this both in 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now when Paul says that he desires their love to abound more and more, he doesn't explicitly state what it is he wishes them to love more. That is, he doesn't give an object of the love. In all likelihood, it is left open because he desires their love to abound in every way, everywhere that it is appropriate. In the immediate context, it would certainly seem that he desires their love to abound in every way, meaning that he desires them to abound in their giving and generosity in the mission of Paul and other missionaries. That's a big part of this context, this partnership in the gospel in that way. Their gift they sent to him by Epaphroditus was a, an overflow of love. He desires such love to continue to abound. If we consider the context of the book a little more broadly, we know that Paul is going to go on to admonish them toward greater humility, toward greater concern of other people, putting others ahead of themselves. So I think it's safe in light of the greater context to say that Paul's desire is for their love for one another to abound more and more, to be overflowing. And so they do possess love, as Paul's writing this. He knows that. He's experienced that. It is a fruit of the Spirit that they have. But Paul is desiring that they would abound more and more in it. That is, that they would increase, or we might say that they would mature in this way. The reality is there is room for love to grow in the life of every Christian. What man or woman among us would claim to have perfected love? And again, notice that mature Christian love involves a commitment and sacrificial attitude, one that would transcend immediate circumstances. But also notice again that affection is good, as Paul himself expressed this toward the Philippians. And so there is a maturing in affection and love for Christians. Secondly, we see maturing in knowledge and discernment. Paul further goes on to show that Christian love is not simply an emotional feeling that fluctuates with the latest trends or with society's sensitivities. Again, if you look at verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So added to this abounding love is knowledge and all discernment. Love is not divorced from true knowledge and discernment. When Paul says knowledge, this certainly would include learning new things, knowing more information, but likely also includes a certainty about what is known. That is a conviction 
of biblical truth. An increased and maturing understanding that one is convinced of. Discernment then, he's talking about knowledge and discernment, is the practical outworking of the knowledge that is in view here. It involves making judgments about right and wrong, about good and evil, about what we should and should not do or take part in. This is something that many evangelicals are loath to do, or this is what they would claim anyway. Rather, we just kind of want to float through our days and not make judgment calls. However, we cannot afford to do that. Judgment calls and discernment, it's not only necessary to make a judgment, but it's actually inevitable. It's unavoidable. For example, if somebody says they don't really care for discernment or don't want to make judgments between right and wrong, that is in itself a judgment. It is a poor one, but it is a judgment. The question is simply whether or not our judgment call is going to be according to truth and in keeping with love or not. Again, notice the balance here. Love is not disconnected from knowledge, truth, discernment, judgment, nor are truth and judgment disconnected from love. They go hand in hand. And we see this all over the Bible, all over Scripture. One good place, Ephesians 4.16. Paul writes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Notice again the context in Ephesians is Christian maturity, growing up. And how Christians will speak to one another, speaking truth in love. So Paul's praying that they'd abound in love along with knowledge and discernment. And then he gives reasons for this. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. Now really, Paul's going to list kind of a number of reasons why he's praying this or a number of outcomes he's desiring. But the first thing he says here is that this abounding in love, knowledge, and discernment will enable the Philippians to approve what is excellent. Did you know that's part of what Christians are designed to do, what you are supposed to do? Approve of the things that are excellent. Also implied in this is its opposite. It implies disapproving of what is base or what is not excellent, what is sinful, what is wrong. If one would approve of what is excellent in life, one is to approve of what is superior, that which God approves of, it requires love, knowledge, and discernment. Would you know the excellent way to encourage your friends? Your fellow believers in the church, love, knowledge, and discernment. Would you know the excellent, wise way to live in the midst of a crooked generation? Love, knowledge, and discernment. Would you know excellent doctrine from that which is bad? Love, knowledge, and discernment. Christian growth involves maturing in knowledge and discernment so as to approve of what is excellent.
Thirdly, and this is where we'll camp out for the rest of our time, uh, maturity reaching its conclusion. Maturity reaching its conclusion. Paul is not simply concerned that the Philippians would be a discerning lot, able to approve of what is excellent and just sit back. This is all working toward even greater purposes, which he continues to reveal. So again, let's start in verse 9. These, sometimes these, these sentences by Paul can get difficult to pull apart. He say something, so that, this, so that, this, so that, and you have to try and follow and piece this all together. And so we're going to try and do that here. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so, as a result, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise, glory, and praise of God. So again, the ability to approve of what is excellent is not simply so as to be super smart and just sit there and make judgments of what's right and wrong. Clearly, Paul sees this as a means to living godly lives. lives, To be pure and blameless. To be filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is why we need the ability to discern right from wrong. Paul envisions and prays here for a growth in purity and holiness that culminates ultimately at the day of Christ. That is, his return. Now, there could be some confusion that arises here. At first glance, it might seem that if I don't abound in love, if I don't grow to a certain level of knowledge and discernment, then I won't be pure and blameless when Christ comes. And therefore, my standing with God is perhaps in question, in doubt. How pure do I have to be? I'm not Sure, if I'm pure enough, am I pure enough according to what Paul is saying here? That might be how someone questions or, or accusations that arise as one reads this. But I would suggest this text ultimately should not leave a believer in doubt and worry. What Paul is describing here and praying for is often what is called sanctification or progressive sanctification. And so I want to take a, a moment here and just clarify a few matters before we return to verses 10 and 11 and, and dig into them a bit more. The Bible, of course, teaches that every man, every woman is born into sin, that every human possesses a sinful nature. And when Abel commits out of that sinful nature flows sinful actions, whether those are thoughts, words, or deeds. And as such, as fallen, sinful beings, we stand under God's condemnation. The Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. And after we die, we stand before God's judgment, and for sinners there is then what the Bible calls the second death. As judgment follows the first death, and hell is the penalty for sinners. And so we have this problem, this legal problem, 
as we consider entering into God's courtroom upon death. We are guilty as sinners. We lack any righteousness of our own by which we can stand before holy, almighty God. And instead, we have a massive debt. We have sinned greatly against God. And there is only one way for this problem to be solved. The only way to be forgiven, the only way to possess righteousness, is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When a person hears the gospel and responds in saving faith, faith that is accompanied by repentance, when God draws that sinner in and opens their eyes and they respond in belief, they are justified. That is, their legal standing is forever changed as God declares them righteous. Their debt is wiped out. That is, they're forgiven their sin and they are given, they are gifted the righteousness of God, which they lacked. This righteousness is what Christ Jesus earned in his earthly ministry. He did not need a righteousness on his own or for himself. He already was righteous, but he obeyed the law on behalf of all whom the Father would give him, all who would believe in him. And at the cross, Jesus takes their sin and satisfies God's wrath against that sin. He pays the penalty. And those then who believe in Christ are forgiven as Christ pays their penalty, but also then given, credited Christ's righteousness that he earned. This is what is sometimes referred to as the great exchange. The hymn says, His robes for mine a wonderful exchange, right? He takes our filthy garments, our sin, pays for them on the cross. We receive his clean, pure garments, his righteousness as a gift credited to our account. This justification is a gift of God's grace and the only way that a human being can be saved. There is a righteousness of God available for sinners and it comes through faith in Jesus. We're going to see this more Paul refers to this in chapter 3 as he talks about all of his works being like garbage to him in order to be found to be in Christ. Verse 9 of chapter 3, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is from obeying the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So when a person is justified... They're declared to be righteous by God because of what Christ has done. Now, it is not that that individual in that moment suddenly has become perfect and completely righteous in their practice. But they are covered with Christ's righteousness. It is credited to that person. Their judicial status, if you will, before God is forever changed. You're declared righteous. And this is never revoked. Such salvation is secure. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, your position before God never changes. From the moment of receiving salvation 
You are declared righteous because of what Christ has done, a gift of God's grace, and never does that change. This is what justification is. There's not a thing you can add to it. You can't thank God enough to earn it or pay Him back. It is of grace that no man may boast. When a person is justified, though they are declared righteous and clothed in Christ's righteousness, in practice, that individual still sins. Yes, there is a new heart that is given with new desires, but there is still what the Bible calls the flesh that this person will battle with. And so as Luther and others have said, A believer is one who is simultaneously just before God, justified, and yet also still a sinner. Yet God does not leave the new believer to simply practice sin forever. No, he also begins to work what is often referred to as a progressive sanctification. That is, God does begin to shape that new believer in their person, into the image of Christ. So Romans 8.29, for example, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. This occurs for all who are truly born again and united to Christ by faith. And this is that up and down experience of the Christian life. That battling against sin, that war with your internal desires. Romans 7, for example, where Paul reveals this battle. And we know God sends trials to help purify his children. He disciplines those he loves. In Hebrews 12, it says, For our good, that we may share his holiness and that it might later yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God is committed to sanctifying His children. Paul himself indicates later in Philippians chapter 3 that this process isn't one that completes in our own lifetime. We're never finally perfected in our persons. Now again, we never lose, a believer in Christ never loses your justification. Salvation is not in doubt. But our sanctification doesn't complete in our lifetimes. With regard to our souls, they are perfected after death. When our souls go to be with the Lord, Hebrews 12 references the spirit of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So upon death, our souls are perfected and with the Lord. But as to our bodies, the final completion of this occurs when Christ returns. And our perfected souls are then united again with glorified, resurrected bodies. We talked a bit about that last week. We read about it from 1 Corinthians 15 earlier in the service. So now we come back to our text. As Paul is praying here, he has in mind this process of progressive sanctification. The process has already begun in these Philippians. 
And he prays here for its completion, that it would continue and that it would be completed at the day of Christ. Abounding in love with knowledge and discernment leads to the approval of what is excellent, which has its end result of believers being pure and blameless, ultimately for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And so true believers will continue to grow, and when Christ returns, then that work is completed. And so this is, Paul is praying that this would continue in the life of the Philippians and come to completion. Notice that this fruit, this fruit of righteousness, comes through Jesus. As Christians are united to Christ, the branches will grow and bear fruit. If you think of John 15, he is the vine. The the picture is he is the vine and we are branches off of him. Abide in me, he says. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing in John 15. That this sanctification process is not merely work really hard at it, but it is continue to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to trust that you are justified in him. That all the promises of salvation are yours in him, including the promise to sanctify you and see you through to the end. Again, this sanctification culminates at the last day, the day of Christ Jesus when he returns and all in him are raised incorruptible and eternal. Believers are declared righteous now, justified, Christ's righteousness credited to us. And then, at the end, at the return of Christ, we will also actually be righteous in our persons. We will have been conformed to Christ. It will be completed at that time. And all of this, Paul says, will be to the glory and praise of God. He will get all the glory and all the praise on that day. He will be glorified and praised when sin is forever abolished and his redeemed forever dwell with him in glory. And on that day when even his enemies acknowledge that Jesus is king over all. That he is Lord Paul's going to say that in chapter 2, verse 11. So interestingly, Paul is praying here for the very thing that he said he is confident God will accomplish in them. So you remember verse 6 we talked about last week. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this is the very thing he's praying for here that they'll march steadily onward to that glorious end, abounding in love, knowledge, and discernment, able to make good judgments, that they might increase in holiness until the time of the Lord's coming to the glory and praise of God. That might seem odd to some. If 
God is sovereign. Paul is pretty con- very confident. He's expressed it already. God's going to accomplish this thing. Why bother pray for it? Well, we see once more here that God has chosen to work his sovereign will through means, through secondary means. One means by which God works is prayer. This is why we pray. This is why we speak of God answering prayer. Down in verse 19, Paul himself says he's confident that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's confident of deliverance because they're praying that that's going to be of aid and help. God will answer that prayer. This is the means by which God works. This is how Paul views prayer as a means by which God has chosen to act. And so we likewise pray. He has ordained prayer as a means of his grace. And we're going to see this interplay between God's sovereignty and human agency, human responsibility throughout the book of Philippians. And this is a matter that is not embarrassing to Paul nor to any of the biblical authors to speak of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Some people think that's embarrassing, but the Bible doesn't. None of the authors did. The authors like Paul and Isaiah often speak of these things side by side in in the same sentence or right back to back. As Paul does in Philippians. The ultimate intellectual grasp of how that all works out escapes us Because God is so much greater than our finite minds can possibly grasp. This is why it's not embarrassing for Paul or any of the biblical authors. God is an eternal being, the infinite one. We are finite. The finite mind cannot ultimately comprehend the infinite. That's impossible. And so there are certain things that we can't resolve in such a way that we can say we completely comprehend the matter. And divine sovereignty and human responsibility is one of those things. God is sovereign and yet works through secondary agency and there are responsibilities amongst humans. Our decisions are meaningful ones. All of this is so. Look at chapter 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As salvation you have, work it outward now. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There it is again. And so we will examine this, obviously, this these things as we continue to work through this book. But I just want to c- conclude this, this third point here with a few takeaways. This idea of maturing, maturity coming to its conclusion, to its end. First, there's a measuring line here for us by which we can test our salvation. The result of justification is growth in the fruit of righteousness through Christ which is brought to its completion at the end. 
If the end result is perfect conformity to the image of Christ, to the glory of God, and yet, if that is of little care to you, if that is of little excitement to you, if there's little or no desire for the fruit of righteousness even now, and there's really no observable gain in your own heart in these areas or progress, then there's reason to be concerned. And I'm not just saying you need to bring a a few external behaviors into line, like going to church and just cleaning up maybe a few of your words or whatever. But of course, God is looking upon the heart. Is there any love for the things of the Lord? Really? For the gospel itself? For the scriptures? For the church? For the pursuit of knowledge, discernment, love, for truth, etc. Now, just a word of caution. I think anytime we say that, I feel like this is somewhat necessary. Because I know that many here are sensitive to this, very aware of your sinfulness before God. Growth and sanctification is not simply a straight shot upwards. We sometimes view it that way. You get saved, and now you just grow in godliness, and it's just this nice straight line that goes directly up to Christ's likeness. But this is not in practice how it works. It involves dips and valleys. It involves many failings, sometimes grievously so. You remember Peter, of course, denying Christ three times. Why do you think that's in the Bible? Among other things, that is an encouragement and a comfort to us who fail, us who sin. To see that even Peter himself did it, spectacularly so, and was forgiven by Christ. In Galatians, we go on to see that he failed again. He sinned again publicly, and Paul rebuked him publicly. And evidently, Peter repented yet again. Some of you have trouble seeing fruit in your own heart. That's understandable and it bothers you. You don't trust yourself to even make those judgments. I would encourage you, ask your brothers and sisters. That's what we're here for, to help you examine yourself if you're uncertain. Often others can see things a little more clearly than you can. And also I would encourage you again to not confuse the process of progressive sanctification with your justification. The sanctification process involves a wrestling and a striving, but justification never wavers. When you hit that low point, you cling to that. You hold fast to that. That you're not saved by your striving or your own sanctifying efforts, but solely because of the work of Christ credited to you by grace that you received by faith, not because of your excellent striving. We have to rest there. You have to find your joy there. So if you're struggling, look again to the greatness of Christ's saving work. He died not just for yesterday's sins, but for all of his people's sins. And that includes 
your sins of tomorrow. I can't believe I did this again. It is sin. It is wrong. You can't believe it, but, but Christ can believe it. He knew it was coming. Your justification does not waver. A second takeaway. Pray for sanctification. Pray for your own sanctification. Pray for the sanctification of your brothers and sisters. This is what Paul is doing in this text. It is not simply a matter of striving harder. And so we pray. I would encourage you to be like the persistent widow in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, who badgered the unjust judge until he finally just gave in and gave her what she was after. And Luke tells us the very purpose of that parable was that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. We pray and we pray and we pray. He's not answering. We keep praying and we do not lose heart. Again, in this process of sanctification, as we will see, we are called to work it out. And yet there is also the very necessary reality that we need God to work in our hearts to change us along the way. This is why you can get up, read, and pray, and be really into it, and pray really hard, and work really hard at it, Memorize a verse, go about your day, and still sin. You still have a rough day in some cases. It's not simply a matter of striving. We do need God's help for this. And so we need to be people who get on our knees and pray for it. We need to understand just how needy we are for him in these things. So let's pray for sanctification, one for another. It's good to pray for many things. This ought to be one of the things at the top of our list. Third, pursue these things that Paul mentions here in greater measure. Pursue an abounding, overflowing love for the things of God. Pray for it. Seek to work at it. Be aware of it. Pray these things for your fellow believers. Seek them in yourself. That you would have a greater love for one another a greater love for the things of the Lord, for the Great Commission, and so on. Pursue growth in knowledge, in understanding, in wisdom, in discernment. Seek to make right judgments that will honor God, that you might progress in the school of godliness. We pray, we get on our knees, and we work at it. This is the model Paul gives us in this very book. He prays for sanctification here, and he's going to admonish the Philippians to likewise pursue it. In chapter 2, he calls them, he admonishes them to think of others more highly than yourself, to humility. Again, we read verses 2 to 13. And if you carry on into verse 14 and following, you see a general call to action. And then of his own self, in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is the attitude. I'm Christ. I belong to him. That's a gracious work of God. Justification is sure. I belong to him. I've not yet made perfection my own, but I'm pressing on toward that goal. And we know that goal will come to fruition, will be completed at the day of Christ Jesus. But in the meantime, we keep making that our aim. This is the maturing life of the believer. Like the Philippians, every Christian has maturing to do. And this will continue throughout our earthly days until the Lord returns and completes the task. And may Paul's prayer be granted in our midst that we might grow and that God might be glorified now in us in a prelude to that day of Christ Jesus when all his saints will be perfected in such a way that he will receive all the glory and praise. And may that day be your joy that you might live now in light of that sure day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your ways are certainly beyond our ways. Father, I, I pray that you would indeed work a great work of sanctification, of growth and holiness in each one of our hearts. Father, we're thankful that you complete the task, the work that you begin in a person. That is our great hope, that you will not let us go, that you will not ultimately let us fall so as to be destroyed. Father, we pray for your grace in these things. Father, I pray that we would be filled with great joy to even now pursue this fruit of righteousness. That as we pick up our Bibles and read, that you would indeed conform us to the image of your Son. That as you take us through valleys and trials, that you would indeed conform us to the image of your Son. Father, may we not despise your discipline but humbly endure it in faith, trusting that you are conforming us to the image of your Son. Thank you for these promises, and I pray that we would cling to them through it all. Father, we're thankful that ultimately salvation is secured because of what Christ has done. Father, in none of these things could we ever repay you for the massive debt that we have been forgiven. Father, I pray that each person here would be confident of your grace, of the forgiveness of sins, confident that Christ is mighty to save and who you and your words say he is. Father, I pray that those folks that we have been witnessing to 
in various situations would come to believe this, would come to understand, would see their need for a righteousness that comes from outside of themselves, that they would see the need for their sin to be pardoned, and that they would find refuge in Christ. Father, cause our love for you, for one another, to abound still more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Father, purify us, fill us with the fruit of righteousness, that you might be glorified now through to the end of our days and at the time that Christ returns. In Jesus' name, amen.